Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. If you weren't here last week or you missed um, any of the messages from this series, I want to encourage you to go and download those messages because we're literally going chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. And some weeks we're taking, you know, two weeks in that, in that one chapter. And so if you've missed something, all of these messages tend to kind of build upon each other. And so you, you don't have to have heard them to understand it, but nonetheless, it's good to get the full context of what we're talking about. And so we have this picture here on the screen, and this is a cool little thing. If you take out your phone and take a picture, the QR code will take you directly to where all of our messages are, and you can listen to those messages and download them as you will. And so at this point in the book of Acts, God is really blessing the church. There's a lot of growth happening in the church. The church is brand new. I mean, it is not even, it is not a year old. It's probably not even six months old. It may not even be three months old. We're not sure of the exact timeline yet. But all I know is God is really blessing the church and with extreme growth. But with that growth comes challenges. How many of you know, as you, if your parents in this place, you have one kid and it's good, it's challenging. You have two kids, it's more challenging. You have three kids and you need medication. You need counseling. Growth is good, but growth comes with its challenges. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Acts. And so we're gonna go back to, uh, we're actually in the, the sixth chapter but we're going to go back to the, the fifth chapter after I read this first verse in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It begins with this word, but. Everybody say but. But, which means that this is a, another time that the Bible is using a continuing thought. Because again, the Bible was not written in chapters, it was written as a complete work, a complete volume. Each book was just a, basically a letter or um, just a writing, if you will, without the breakdown of chapters and verses. Those were added later. So this is a continuing thought of what we see in chapter five. And so let's go right to chapter five, verse 41, so we understand what the but is for. It says, the apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had continued, excuse me, had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continue to teach and preach this message. Jesus is the Messiah. What just happened? What happened was the, the apostles got in trouble yet again from the religious leaders of that day. They were arrested, they were put in jail because they were preaching the gospel, they were praying for the sick and people were being healed and the religious leaders and the leaders of the temple, the Sadducees did not like that. They did not even believe there was such a thing as a resurrection and here these apostles are preaching Jesus Christ, the Messiah who they crucified was resurrected from the dead and he's our king and they did not like that. And so they arrested them, they put them in jail, and of course an angel came, opened up the door to the prison, and sent them right back into the temple to preach. And so they were caught again by the religious leaders, and they were beat this time and sent back and told not to do this again. And so rather than getting bitter, rather than saying mean things about them on Twitter, they decided to go right back, rejoice in the fact that they were, they were counted worthy to be persecuted for the sake of Jesus, and they kept preaching. So that's what happens. And then that's why verse 6 says, but... So they rejoice. They're all preaching every single day. Jesus is Messiah. But, verse 6 says, as the believers rapidly multiplied, there was rumbling of discontent. There was a rumbling of discontent. We're going to see two things that take place in the sixth chapter. Rapid growth and growing pains. Rapid growth and growing pains. Because as I mentioned before, this was a 
fairly new church. The church itself was not old. The birth date of the church, the beginning of the church was Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. That's, that was the beginning of this thing that we now call the church. And when I say the church, it's really the church globally across the world. It began in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And so from that time to this, it was not a year. It was not six months. It may not have even been three months, yet we see that just from what the Bible's already told us, there were probably well over 10,000 people in the church, if not more than that. It could have been in the tens of thousands. So in less than three months, tens of thousands of people are a part of this church. And it's got 12 men as the leader. 12 men for this multitude of people. Now, they were rapidly growing because God was breathing on them and they were responding to God's will. They were doing what God wanted them to do. They were faithful to go and to preach the gospel. Everywhere they went, they were talking about Jesus. Everywhere these apostles went, they were praying for the sick. The sick were being healed, preaching Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah you've been waiting for. Jesus is Lord. And so all of these Jewish people by the droves are getting saved, getting born again. And this is where we find ourselves. This is why the rapid growth was happening. But how many of you know when God is blessing us, the devil is always trying to get in there? And we've taken a look already at some of the ways that the devil was trying to attack the early church. The first way he tried to attack them was through persecution. He tried getting the religious leaders all stirred up and coming after them to persecute them and to tell them, you need to stop talking about this Jesus. You need to stop blaming us for his death even though they were guilty. You need to stop trying to deceive all these people. And they just kept going. They proved, the more they tried to intimidate them, the more courageous they got. That's our heritage as a church. When the world tries to shut us up, we speak all the more. And I'm not talking about speaking for some political agenda. They were not political. They spoke for the kingdom. They spoke for God. They spoke for God. I wish some of us were as bold about the kingdom as we are about our politics. I'll save that for other messages. But the first thing they did is they persecuted them. The next thing that the enemy tried to use, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, was sin. He tried to get sin in the camp. He put Ananias and Sapphira there who were hypocrites. And they said that they were selling a piece of property for X amount of money and they were giving it all to the, the church. But of course, they were holding some back. They just wanted to get the, 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 the uh, what's the right word? I can't even think of the word. They, they wanted the acknowledgement of having given it all even though they didn't. And so what happened? God himself judged them and they died on the spot. And we talked about this last week, how there's church discipline and, and that God has given church discipline as a part, a vital part of the church. But in that moment, God did not give the discipline to the apostles. God himself stepped in to prove a point that sin brings death. And so we saw that in that, that did not stop the church because God dealt with it. They let God deal with it and they kept growing. What a growth strategy. God kills people and the church grows. <laughs> Only God's growth strategy. And so we see that these first attempts at stopping the church did not work. But then we see the next attempt, the next strategy of the enemy that in all honesty has been working throughout churches, in churches, excuse me, throughout the world ever since this moment. He tried sin, he tried persecution, didn't work. Then he tries something else, division and dissension. Churches all over the world divide. God can be blessing a church, using a church to impact the city, to impact the community, to impact the world even. And what happens? People start getting mad and start fighting. They start complaining. They start dividing. And all of a sudden, the work of God is stopped. This was the enemy's plan. This is what he did. This is the growing pains that we see in the early church. So once again, let's go back to this verse. It says, verse one, it says, but as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in a daily distribution 
of food. So, again, the church is exploding, but like I mentioned before, there weren't yet Gentiles in the church. These, they were all Jewish people, but there was a difference between these Jewish people. The, when, this, when the Bible is talking about the Greek speaking and the Hebrew speaking, there's much more to it than just the languages that they were using. And I'm going to unpack that more in a second, but let me just say this. Diversity in a church is beautiful. Diversity in the house of God should be the case. There should not be a black church or a white church. There should not be. And I know there are churches within our region where you got, this is the black church, this is the white church. God never said that. God never called there to be a black church or a white church. We may have Hispanic churches because none of y'all would understand what the pastor's saying. I wouldn't probably get a pass. But there's no such thing as a black church or a white church. Why? Because when you get to heaven, it will be a diverse heaven. There's not going to be, here's the black heaven, here's the white heaven, there's the Asian heaven, Latino heaven, where they played salsa. There won't be that. Heaven will be a diverse place. So guess what? His kingdom on earth should look like that. It should look like that. But as I mentioned last week, diversity brings problems. Diversity is beautiful. Diversity should happen. Diversity should happen naturally and organically. But it brings problems. It brings problems. And let's talk about those problems. This verse talks about, again, the Greek-speaking and the Hebrew-speaking believers. Now, again, they were all Jews, but this was more than just, I speak this language, you speak this language. This was a cultural divide. This was a major cultural divide. See, and I'm going to go back. I'm going to give you just a very small history lesson just for a moment to give you understanding and context When Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world at that time, he brought the Greek culture with him. He would conquer territories and not just leave them to speak their language and do things their way while he ruled. He would let the Hellenistic um, culture come into that, that country or that land. Meaning he would teach them Greek, the Greek language. He would teach them Greek um, myth, uh, philosophy. They would try to turn them into Greek people wherever he went. And so as he was conquering the world, he was leaving his stamp of Greek culture everywhere that he went. So much so that even when the Roman Empire overtook that, and actually there were other ones, but the Roman Empire came, came and overtook everything that the Greeks owned, they still had their stamp of culture everywhere that they went. So much so that when you think about what you learned in high school, it still majorly affects our society in the Western world today. Most of you, when you were in high school, you learned about Greek philosophers. You learned about Socrates and Aristotle and Plato. You learned about all of these people. Why? Because the Greek influence is still on our culture today. As a matter of fact, the Bible, the New Testament, was written in Greek. And so it was so predominant in the culture that you had even Jewish people that, were, that came from, remember in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter two, whenever the church was born and the people, the, the people, Jewish people from all over the world came for the day of Pentecost and God poured out his spirit and they stayed, many of them stayed in Jerusalem. Because God was moving there. So they didn't go back to the places that they lived that were heavily influenced by the Greek culture. They stayed right there in Jerusalem. And so they spoke the Greek language and were now having to interact with these other Jewish people who spoke the original Jewish language. They spoke in Hebrew. And so you have these Greek people who kind of taken on the Greek culture, but they were still Jews. And you had these traditional Jewish people who stuck to, no, I'm speaking the original Hebrew language. That's the divide that we saw. Now, just to kind of paint a picture for you, a few years ago, I started going to this bakery um, here in town, and I love loved food. Many of you know that. Um, but I started going to this bakery called Poparts. Is it Poparts or Poparts? See, a divide just began in the church. 
for the sake of this message, we'll call it poo parts. <laughs> so, and I started going there, and it's a French bakery. And, and I'm, I would bring my daughters there for dates. Like, I would bring them on a date before church, um, and it'd just be me and one of my daughters. And we'd sit down, and that's kind of their daddy-daughter time and the whole deal. And so let me just side note, if you have daughters, date your daughters. Date your daughters. Why? Because if you don't show them what a date is supposed to look like, one day another boy will. Just that's a side note for you. But while I was there, I met this lady and just very, very nice lady. And she started telling me about how, how during the week her and some of her friends would come to, to poo parts and they would, they would speak French to one another. They would sit down and have French conversations there in that Cajun French, keeping in their culture intact. And so they would stay there and talk in French. And I just thought that was the coolest thing, um, that they would do something like that. And so that's kind of like what we see the Jews here holding on to their Jewish culture. And now we have these outside Jews who are still Jews. Not only are they Jews, now they're all born again Christians and they believe Jesus is Lord, but yet they've been heavily influenced by the other culture. So they're divided. Hopefully I painted that picture well so you guys see that. And so what happens is, as these two cultures collide, the Greek-speaking people, they felt like their widows were being neglected in a daily distribution of food. Now, what was the daily distribution of food? Now, remember this, because many of the, the Christians at the time were poor because they'd come from other places in the world or had lost their jobs in the temple. And, and, and the Bible says that there was something like 18,000 priests who worked, the Bible doesn't say that, excuse me, history says that, about 18,000 priests who worked at the temple. Some of them were losing their jobs because they were now believing Jesus was Messiah. And so that's why there was this need for, for people to be taken care of. And so, the, like we mentioned before, the, the, the disciples were coming and bringing their money to the apostles and laying it at their feet. And with that money, they would take that money and they would, distri- they would distribute things to those in need. And so there was a daily distribution of food to the widows. So you have the Greek-speaking Jews, the Hebrew-speaking Jews. The Greek-speaking widows, the Hebrew-speaking widows. Every day they're getting food. The Greek-speaking widows felt like they were getting the short end of the stick. They felt like they weren't, because they weren't Jewish uh, in culture like the rest of those Jews, that they were getting left out. So they started complaining. And they started saying, wait a minute, we're not being represented properly, and so you need to do something about this. Now, they were complaining, like we saw in, in the chapters before, uh, like I mentioned, as they were selling their property and all of those things. And you can look at this as something unfair happening two different ways. You can look at it like this. These Greek-speaking troublemakers were complaining and causing trouble. Just be happy that you're getting something. Just be happy that we're sacrificing everything we have so that we can give you something. Just be content. You can look at it that way. Maybe that was the case. Or you can look at it this way. These immoral Hebrew-speaking bigots were holding out on these poor Greek-speaking widows just because of their culture. Which one was it? Guess what? The Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us. If I had to guess, it was probably a little bit of both. But what I do know is that this was nonetheless a legitimate problem that needed to be addressed. Because if they did not address this problem, the church as we know it would have divided. It would have divided. See, that's how the devil works. The enemy takes a legitimate problem that needs to be addressed and that needs to be fixed, and he starts accusing us to the other party. And he starts accusing the other party to us. You know what I'm talking about. You guys know those arguments that you have with people that they're actually not there for. Those arguments you have in your mind. They said this, but I know what they were really saying. Don't get quiet on me now. You've done it. I've done it. Or did you see that? They walked right past me and did not even say a word. 
I didn't even do them anything. Uh, let me make a suggestion. Maybe, just maybe, they didn't see you. <laughs> maybe that was the case. Maybe that happened. If you're not clapping, you're offended because somebody did that to you before church this morning. I just called you out. See, that's what the enemy does. He, the Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. That's his job. He accuses other people to you and you to other people. He starts, when there's a, there's a little bit of a gap there, what he does is he starts telling you what that person's motives are without them even being there to defend themselves. See, I tell you what they did. They did this because of that and that and they, and, they, and five years ago, remember that time when they mentioned that in passing, but you knew what they really meant and you knew it was going to take some time, but five years later it came to pass and that's exactly what you saw back then. God showed you their heart. That's how the enemy works. He is the accuser of the brethren. And I love the way that Jesus teaches us to deal with this, though, because the way Jesus teaches us to deal with this removes the gap. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, do what? Go to them. Go to them. And listen, if you can't get to them in time, if you can't get to them, this is a principle that I've learned about that gap between what they did or what you think they did, fill the gap with trust. Because if you don't fill the gap with trust, the enemy is going to fill it with accusation. He's going to fill it with all the things that you think, that he wants you to think that they meant when they did what they did or said what they said. And the truth is, they may not even know it, or they may, ha they may have done it on purpose. I'm not just saying trust, it's, uh, everything was great. But what I'm saying is deal with the problem. Go to the person and have the conversation. See, what we're talking about with these, these two cultures colliding is similar to as if those, those Baton Rouge Cajuns started coming to our church and we're distributing gumbo to everybody and they want tomatoes in theirs. And we refuse. So we, we start giving them less gumbo and they start complaining. I'm joking, but honestly, this is probably close to what we're talking about here. This was a very real problem. And this problem could have divided the church. It could have completely derailed what God was doing. When people start backbiting, complaining, and dividing, it hurts the greater mission of the church. Now, I'm not an advocate for just shut up and be grateful. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is, again, deal with the problem the right way. Deal with it the right way. I'm not saying just, it's okay, just always believe the No, Jesus said, go to them. And we live in such a non-confrontational culture. The culture that we live in says, talk to everybody else and go online before you have the conversation with that person. That's the culture we live in. We're real bold behind our keyboards. We're extremely bold on our phones, on Twitter on giving our opinion, but stand in front of that person and we have nothing to say. See, the Bible deals with this. That's why Jesus says, go to them. I'm not advocating for just deal with it. What I'm saying is go about it the right way. And what happens is we start, we start to gossip. We start gossiping about other people in the church. And what do I mean by that? And even the leadership of the church this is what a great definition of gossip. If you never heard this, this is great. This is uh, Pastor Gabe's dish, dictionary, um, page 412. Great definition of gossip is talking to someone about a problem who can't do anything to help fix it. When you're talking to someone about someone else and that person can't do anything to help fix that problem, is gossip. And that's hurting the church. And it, it seems small, it seems subtle, but let me tell you what happens. So you start talking to them and you say, hey, they did this to me and I just, I mean, I don't know whether, and you act like I'm just processing. I'm just talking, man, they did this and I, I, I think they meant to do this. Can you believe they did that? And here's this unsuspecting person going, they did that? Oh my gosh. So the next interaction they have with them 
they already have in their mind what that person's all about. Well, they're just like that. So, and they go back to them. Girl, I know exactly what you meant. They can't, they didn't even say hi to me. Did they see me? No, but they still didn't say hi to me. So they're probably doing the same thing to me that they did to you. And then they go to this person and here's this poor person over here going, what's going on, guys? How come nobody wants to talk to me? That's how gossip and deceit and dissension divides us. When I'm talking about the church, I'm not, again, I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the people, the people. So I, I love how the apostles address this. They use God's wisdom to deal with this. Verse two, so the, the 12 called a meeting of all the believers and they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. See, up until this point, the apostles were the everything to the church. They were the ones going everywhere, preaching and doing this. And so the people expected them to fix every problem. They were the ones in charge of the distribution of the food. They probably had people helping them, but they were in charge of it. These 12 men whose job was to spread this gospel throughout all of the world had the the temptation to get bogged down by the minute details of what was going on in the church. See, everybody thought it was them. And this may not be obvious in the middle of a problem or in the middle of a conflict, but the apostles recognize something. This is a distraction from the devil. This is a distraction from the enemy. It's not that it's not a legitimate problem. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. It's not that it's, that it's illegitimate. There's legitimacy to this issue and the problem needs to be fixed. But if we don't fix this problem and deal with this the right way, the enemy will win. Because what you see is these Greek-speaking Jews aren't getting the same amount of food, and that's unfair. But if you take a 30,000-foot view approach and you look at this from God's perspective, this one small issue can derail everything God wants to do in the earth today. Different perspective. You don't have to clap. It's right. They had a different perspective and they saw that this is a distraction from the enemy. The apostles, they they basically said, we know our roles and we know our responsibility. And it's not to be everything to everyone. It is to preach the gospel. That doesn't mean that the roles that they're getting ready to set up is not important. It doesn't mean that what's happening is not important. But we've got to know our place and our role. It's not, see, the church was not built on the distribution of food. I love our serve days. Did you guys enjoy that video? You love seeing that? I love that. You don't enjoy that? (laughs) Seeing that? Okay. Well, I love the fact that we go out and we serve the community and we do all of those things. Those are important parts of reaching our community. But let me be very clear. If we have that without the preaching of the gospel, we become a nonprofit organization and not the church of Jesus Christ. Our primary mission is to be the church. If we do those things and we serve the community well and we never let the community know about Jesus, then we failed. We have failed. We can support all of the people and organizations we want in the world. But if we are not preaching the gospel, we are missing our call. And the apostles bring it right back and say, listen, our role, we know who we are. We know the part that we play. Our role is to preach the gospel, is to teach the people the word of God, is to to let this thing called the church spread. And I'm going to come back to this point, but I love how this starts. So the 12, they get everybody together. They don't hide this. They don't do this in the corner somewhere. They say, call the church together. All the thousands of people, get them all together. Let us all talk to them. We're going to all talk about this. And they have a a big open setting, and they tell them, look, here's the problem. This is how we're going to handle it, but we are not going to lose sight of our mission. Now, the, the wording in this I want, to talk, I want to talk about. The translation that we use, the NLT, says that we're not going to be in charge. We're not going to run a food program. That's what they say. But other translations say to serve tables. 
to serve tables. We're not here to, call, to serve tables, and which that's probably a more accurate um, wording of what the Greek language was actually saying. And the word tables that they're talking about is, can be used for two things in the Bible. One, yes, the serving of food, but also it's the exchanging of money. Because remember, the people were bringing the money where? To the apostles' feet. And they kept giving the apostles the money and expecting the apostles to go out and to divvy it all out the way that it need to be. And so here they are trying to plant this church, trying to reach these thousands of people and get the gospel all around the world. Now they found themselves, okay, I got to take your money. I got to put it the right way. I got to do this the right way. I got to take care of them. I got to take care of them. And before you know it, they're ineffective with what they were supposed to do, preach the gospel and make disciples. See, sometimes we have to clear our plate. We have to clear all of the stuff out of the way and go, what, am I, what does God want me to be doing here? The enemy of great is not bad, is good. The enemy of great is good because good is good enough and you feel good about what you're doing, but it's not the great thing that you're called to. That's why they found themselves. In other words, they're saying our job is to focus on the word. Not the money, not all of the needs of the people. Our job is to focus on the preaching and the establishing of God's word. Now, as a leader, I know one thing. My job is not to do everything in this church. But I also know as a leader, my responsibility is to make sure everything gets done in this church. So I have that responsibility. And I can remember when I was a a student pastor, I was a, a, a youth pastor a long time ago when I was in Mississippi, before I was even a youth pastor here, this, I thought I had to do everything. So I would go drive 30 minutes away, pick up kids to come to youth service, come, bring those kids back to the youth service. We would set up the building so that we can do the youth service. I would do a worship practice with those kids. I would lead worship for that youth group. Don't ask me to sing, it wasn't good. I would lead, I would lead worship with those kids, probably run a game that I came up with, preach to those kids, tear down the building with those kids, and then bring those kids home. When I was young and dumb and I was doing youth ministry, that I thought I had to do it all. I can't imagine trying to do that now as the pastor of this church. Hold on, guys. Let me run in the back and change my slide for my next point, and then I'll run back up. Right? They knew our primary focus is to play our part. It's to play our part. The same thing happened with Moses, and I'm not going to go too far in this for the sake of time. But remember Moses in in the book of Exodus when God uses Moses to bring his people out of Egypt. And now he's gotten them out of Egypt. And Moses has these millions of people that are following every word that he says. And they're looking at everything Moses says. And day in and day out, Moses would go and sit in the seat of authority. And he would judge the problems of the people. So these people would have a problem with these people. And they would go to Moses. And Moses would fix the problem. And then the next group of people. And all the time, Moses is doing everything. Praying for God to bring food for these millions of people. And then one One day, Moses' father-in-law comes along, and his father-in-law is named Jethro. And Jethro comes to Moses, and he's looking around, and he's seeing everything, and Moses is saying, you see, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And instead of going, Moses, you're so busy, and you're so important. God is really using you. Jethro looks at Moses, and he says, what you're doing is not good. What you are doing is not good. And it wasn't the people's fault. It wasn't God's fault. It was Moses' fault. Because Moses thought he was the end-all, be-all, and he had to do everything. Don't you hate it when your father-in-law is right? Come on, somebody. (laughs) And Moses says, you're right. And God gives him wisdom, and he imparts his spirit to other people. He empowers other people to help him do what God had called them to do. The apostles knew that very well, which is why they said what they said. And let's keep going. Verse 3. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this, this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time pray, in prayer and teaching the word. Again, they said, we know our part. But you, I love this. 
the apostles didn't just solve the problem and go and pick people. They said this, you go back and you pick the seven men. You go back and you pick, you select seven people and we will, we know our part, we'll pray for them, we'll lay our hands on them, we'll empower them. But you've got to know, yes, there's a problem, but you are a part of the solution. Don't bring me the issues to fix when you have a part in fixing this. I tell my staff this all the time. I said, don't bring me problems. Bring me three solutions for every problem that you bring me. Bring me a solution or some options for every problem that you bring me. Why? Because if they see the problem, more than likely they are a part of the solution. Church, you may walk into this building and go, something's wrong there, that's wrong, that's wrong, or why doesn't the church have this? You want to know why the church doesn't have it? Because that's the part you're called to play. That's the part you're called to play. For those of you that have been wondering, when's that coffee shop going to open? We have a part to play. We are a part of the solution. And I love the way that the apostles put some responsibility back on the people that were complaining about the issue. He says, you go and pick seven men. This is not a perfect church. This is the body of Christ, but we're not perfect. And you are going to see deficiencies in this church. And you can sit back and criticize it on what it is and what it's not. Or maybe you can realize that if it doesn't have it, it's because it's waiting for you to be that. I wish the church would do more for the poor than come help us do more for the poor. I wish the church would do more for the kids in our community than I wish you would come and help us do more for the kids in our community. I wish that the church had more people that look like me than invite more people that look like you. I wish the, more, the church had more people that have my economic status than invite more people who have your economic status. You are a part of the solution if you see the problem. You are. But listen, there is a second part to this. And I love the way that the apostles do this. There's a second part to this. The, the apostles didn't just say, just pick seven people and give them to us. They said, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility. In other words, give us men with character. Give us men with character. See, sometimes we have people who want to do things in church and want to lead things in church and want to add value in church, but they don't have the character yet, the intimacy with God yet, or the wisdom yet to do it. And God's done this in my life and I've seen him do it in other people's lives where he puts a dream in your heart to do something for him, but then he does not let you do it for a while. Why is he, why is he doing that? Because he's developing your character, your intimacy with him and your wisdom. God gives you the dream, yes, but then he puts you in the process to get you to the place where you're fulfilling that. And I'm so glad this was not planned the way I, this was written. It's the way it fell. But I, Dustin and Heather Jordy sat there in the back with a dream in their heart to be missionaries to Haiti for eight years. What was God doing? He was working out the scenarios around them, yes, but he was working in them to prepare them for that. Because they weren't ready to go there yet. And God put them in the process of that. And so many times in churches, and I'm have to be honest, I'm guilty of having done this in the past myself, of putting people in leadership positions that are not ready for that leadership position yet. And it ends up hurting them, and it ends up hurting the body. I love the way the apostles did this. They say, give us men with character, with intimacy with God, and with wisdom. And that's why, just to teach you something extra on a side note, because I've heard so many people misquote this scripture. That's why the Bible tells us not to lay hands on people suddenly. It's not because if you lay hands on somebody, a demon's going to jump off of them and get on you. I know for some of my Pentecostals, that's what you were taught. That's not right. 
What it was saying is when you lay hands on someone, you are saying, I stand with them and I'm appointing them for this leadership role. And so when the Bible says don't lay hands suddenly, what it's saying is don't appoint people too quickly to leadership positions that aren't ready. Don't put people in the leadership too soon when they don't have the character yet to sustain them. They don't have the time in with God to sustain them. So you may see something that we're deficient in in the church, but here's the thing. The reason we don't have it is one, because you haven't stepped into the role, but then secondly, it could be because God is just working it out in you so that you can later on step into that role and help us meet that need. That's the second part of this. I love the wisdom of the apostles. When we're in that process, it's not easy, I know it. It's long, it's hard. You may have a dream for something God has put in your heart to do. It takes a lot to wait on God in those moments. And let me just tell you something, because you may think that, that you're waiting on me or waiting on one of the leaders or you're waiting on Pastor Jacob Aranza or you're waiting on, you're not waiting on us. God's waiting on you to get the lessons that he's trying to teach you so that you are ready for those things. When will people recognize the gift of God on my life? When God says that you're ready? That's when. When are they gonna see me? When God is ready for them to see you? See, God gives promotion. You may be feeling that way about your boss. When are they gonna see me? When God is ready for them to see you. You be faithful and do your job well and they won't, have, they won't have an option but to bless you. You're expecting them to do it. You just be faithful and let God do it. Man, I know, I know this is rattling you, but it's good. It's good for us. The apostles then say, we will give them the responsibility. We, you select them. Give us people with character. Give us people with intimacy. Give us people with wisdom. And then we'll lay hands on them and give them their responsibility. In other words, they're keeping order. Going, wait a minute. We're not, this is not going to be some separate thing off. This is going to be something that we bless and we send out. You may have a call of God on your life. Make sure that it's blessed. Make sure that you're sent. That's why we're the body and we do it together. Well, I, I remember 10, 20 years ago when every, the big thing was the nonprofit organizations and the parachurch ministries. Listen to me, those are great if they're under the covering of a church. You can't build the church without the church. God's plan is the church of Jesus Christ. That's why he establishes apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. Are y'all with me this morning? Then they mention again, then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and in teaching of the word. In other words, we will empower them to do their part and we will continue to do our part. This is when the body of Christ is cooking with gas. When every part of the body is doing its part, instead of sitting back and complaining about what's not happening, they're doing their part to see the kingdom move forward. That's when we're really thriving as a church. That's why the Bible says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. So many different scriptures throughout the Bible support what I'm talking about. Ephesians 4 says, he, meaning God, makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Each part does its special work work, meaning I need you, you need me, we need us. If we're going to do this, we need us. So here's my question for you this morning. What part do you play? What part do you play in what God is doing in the earth? What's the thing he's putting your heart to do? What's the frustration that you see that the church is not doing? What is the thing that you go, I wish someone would? What is that tension that you see? Because if you feel that tension, you are probably called to be a part of that solution. What part do you play? Do you love kids? We have ministries for that that need you. Nursery, kids, student ministry. Some of you, you hear that, you go, oh, I don't want to work with kids. Then don't. Please don't. 
But if you love kids and love being around babies and praying for them, we need you. Step into that. If you love making people feel at home, we need you. If you, love, if you don't like being around people, but you love making stuff work, we need you. We have teams for you for that. If, if you can sing, if you can really sing, Don't come to DeMar and Jenna with this, my mama said I can sing stuff. Don't do that. Because then you'll get hurt and offended and leave the church. If you can sing, we need you. If you can play an instrument, we need you. If you love teaching people, we need you. What part do you play? Verse 5, everyone liked this idea. And they chose the following, Stephen a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about him in the weeks to come. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timian, Parmenas, excuse me, Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them, appointing them to go out and do their part. Everyone loved this solution. Why? Because it was a God solution. I believe it was what the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, a word of wisdom. Wisdom they didn't have that came directly from the Lord to help deal with this problem. Now what's interesting, and you may not catch this in the reading of it, but all seven of those names were Greek names. They were Greek names, meaning that the people who were complaining, the Greek-speaking people, the solution was found in the Greek-speaking people. In other words, the problem was solved by the people that the problem affected. This ownership that we have, it's too easy for us to go, they are the problem. They may be the problem, but I'm part of the solution. I love that. Are you a solution to a problem? Verse 7. So God's message continued to spread. The numbers of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted to. Once again, the church passed the test. Then they responded, they responded well and with God's wisdom and God continued to bless them with growth. Church, I wanna see God reach our communities. I wanna see the church grow. I want to see lost people come in and meet Jesus and get born again and their lives change. But can I be honest with you? We've got to pass these tests. We've got to pass the test of sin. We've got to pass the test when we're persecuted for righteousness sake. And we've got to pass the test of division. When we're divided for whatever the reason is, whether you put tomatoes in your gumbo or not, whether you don't like someone because of their economic status, whether you don't like someone because of the color of their skin, whether you don't like someone because their culture is not Cajun enough or their culture is differently than yours, it doesn't matter. Will we pass the test and will we do our part in seeing the kingdom spread? Let me just say this. It's not all dependent on me. It's not all dependent on my staff. As a body, we need you. What part? do you play? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for the challenge this morning to help us see our roles, our lanes, where we should stay, what we should do, how we should thrive. But I pray, God, that you would help us. I pray that even this morning you would begin, and I'm really asking you this, Father, begin the process of putting dreams in the hearts of the people in our church. Help them see visions for problems that they see. Help them see themselves as solutions to things I don't even see, we may not even see, things we may not even see coming that they see and they know. But I also pray that you would develop in them the character, develop in them the intimacy with you and develop in them the wisdom. And sometimes that just takes time. Help them be okay with the process. You're not a microwave oven, God. You take your time. You're a crockpot, God. You put us in. You make us wait because it's developing us. 
Thank you for developing us. And I thank you promotion comes from you. Let this body be fully functional. All doing our part to see your kingdom spread. In Jesus' name. Now when everybody's eyes closed, heads bowed, I'm going to stay in that place of prayer. I'm going to ask you the most important question you've ever been asked. Are you born again? So I'm talking about the body doing its part, but you may say, Pastor, I'm not a part of the body. I'm not born again. I'm not saved. I've, I've, never, I've never been born again. And I'm not talking about you are born again and the sin in your life. And that's the case. You just need to repent. You need to ask God to forgive you. But if you've never been born again, never made that, had that moment, that line of demarcation where you step over the line and go from this moment on, I belong to him. He is now the Lord of my life. Jesus said it this way. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're first born again. First born again. If you would say, Pastor, that's me. I want to be born again. I want to pray for you. And I'm going to tell you about a process as simple, as easy as ABC. A, you admit that you're a sinner. B, you believe that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. And C, you confess that he is now the Lord of your life. If you say, Pastor, that's me. I want to be born again. Will you pray for me? I want to acknowledge who I'm praying with. On the count of three, I want you to just lift up your hand. One, two, three. If that's you, if you say, I want to be born again, I want to pray for you. Anyone in this place? Thank you. I see your hand. Thank you. If you didn't raise your hand, I'm going to give you one more opportunity to say, that's me. I want to, I want to be born again. Include me in that prayer, Pastor. One, two, three. Well, let's pray. Church, if you will, say this prayer loud with me. Say, Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe on the cross you died for my sin, for my guilt, and for my shame. I believe you faced hell so I would not have to go. You rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven, purpose on earth, and a relationship with the Father. So I turn from my sin. I repent of it. And from this moment on, God, you're my Father. Jesus, you're my Savior. Holy Spirit, you're my helper. Heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen.